Hello and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast with me, your host, Fabio Molle. Every week I speak to the big hitters in the world of tennis, both on and off the court, about the game and how we can all get 1% better every day at what we do. As an ex-national team player, I know exactly how tough this can be. So I'm on a journey to get the very best tips and advice from the world of tennis. Last week on the Functional Tennis Podcast, I spoke to Amanda Jane Napier-Owens, a leading sports and performance psychologist. In our conversation, Amanda and I discussed when it is the right time to introduce pressure into training sessions of junior players. I also asked Amanda what is the best way to get fired up before a big game and if this really improves performance. Dr. Owens also gives us some fascinating insight into why anger isn't effective in tennis. And we also discussed the science behind the dreaded yips and how players can try to stop it happening to them it was an excellent episode and there was a lot coaches and players can learn so definitely go back and give it a listen if you missed it this week on the podcast i speak to wta tour coach mark gellard mark started coaching in the united states in alabama where he went to college at 22 he would go on to meet swiss tennis great martina hingis and become her tour and hitting partner for a short period this would be the start to an excellent career as a coach and now mark is a top tour coach who currently works with polish tennis star and top 20 ranked player Magda Lynette. In our conversation, Mark explains why players need to coach themselves during the game, as well as giving a strong defense for on-court coaching. Really interesting. We also chat about Mark's work with Magda and ask him what's the difference between a top 100 and a top 20 player. But first, let's learn more about Mark and his unconventional start in coaching. Enjoy. Mark, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on Functional Tennis. Yeah, no, uh, great to speak with a, a top tour coach, working with a top 20 player, Magdalenette. But maybe you can kick us off with how your tennis journey started. I'll keep it pretty simple and quick because my tennis wasn't that interesting. From England, went to college tennis, played at South Alabama, graduated, finished number one in my family. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, tried to play some futures, knew really quickly that I wasn't going to be good enough to, to get into coaching, even in the area in, in Mobile, Alabama, where I lived, working with juniors and stuff like that. And then hitting partners uh, at some local ITF 25s and 50s and things like that. And then I got really lucky um, after I graduated in the May, I'd gone home to England to watch a, a, somebody I knew playing down in Eastbourne. And she uh, she invited me down, and I I got to meet this woman, and I was hustling in the in the lounge, uh, and she said to me, she worked for a sports agency, Octagon. This lady I'd met, and uh, long story short, she called me that night as I was driving back home to Reading, where I was, my family is, and um, she said, "Listen, we got a player that needs uh, a hitting partner for the next few weeks. Are you available?" I said, "Sure, sign me up." Who is it? And she said, "Was well, Martina Hingis." Wow. I said, well, yeah, sure, I'm available. So I was a bit nervous because I hadn't hit much since I'd graduated and, you know, tennis was kind of winding down. But I went out literally next day and met her and she she was great and she kind of liked it. So we carried it on through the summer till about US Open. Wow. What did you learn? What was Martina like? Uh, she was great. Probably the most coachable player I've ever had. And, and you got to remember at the time I was 22, so I knew nothing, really. I knew less than nothing. And she was so open to ideas. I always considered myself fit 
and a hard worker and then I met her and I thought I, I mean she made me look bad the, the the amount of hours on the court she did the run I mean we would start off 6 30 breakfast we were in the gym for an hour at 7 30 doing interval training every morning and then you're on the court for two hours then you lunch then you're you, you take a nap you know she'd take a nap and then you're back on the court from three to five and then she would we go running on the beach in san diego or running down by the lakes wherever we i mean we just it was just non-stop probably she overdid it to be honest but uh yeah she was in great shape and so professional how old was she at the time roughly late 20s okay so late 20s yeah this was back in 2008 nine something like that and so what's the what apart from hard work what's the one thing you learned from her um that's a good question um she 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 had an unbelievable understanding of the game i mean the way she could play she 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 saw the game two shots ahead of everyone else so she was it was like watching someone play chess rather than tennis on the physical side she did the work but on the mental side she really put in a lot of pride into outthinking her opponents um from that side i think a lot of day, a lot of time nowadays players just try to win the physical battle and the mental one is not so important but she was really smart on the court and where do you think she picked that up was that just growing up just who she was or can that be taught yeah i think so i think we have to hope it can be taught otherwise as coaches we're in trouble because i think some people think it's it's you're either born with it or you can make it i think it's probably a bit of both she she obviously her mum coached her growing up the difference for me with her and that generation was that they were tennis players 24 hours a day so she woke up and thought about tennis and she went to bed thinking about tennis uh now not so much i think a lot of players there tennis players when they're on the court or in the gym but the rest of the time there's other things but she watched matches you know even at the tournaments we were at she went and watched other matches she would watch her own matches on video i think that a lot of tennis iq and, and understanding of the game comes from from playing but also watching and watching other people yeah we've had a few coaches on recently say that where players these days they don't know old players one and secondly they don't watch enough videos even of themselves player they don't watch full tennis matches and you're right there's a there's a lot to be learned and you're mixed in this world where you're surrounded by these professionals all the time and you can clearly see that, can you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I always remember when you're teaching kids, when you're teaching really young kids how to play, the best way for them to learn that you, you have a line of five kids and one of them's hitting a forehand, the best way for the others to learn is they watch and they learn from each other and they observe and they imitate. And I think we've lost that a little bit. You know, players come and they have a coach. Okay, teach me how to do this coach for these two hours. And then when I leave, it's, you know, I might remember some of it, but you got to teach me. Uh, rather than it always is better if the player learns themselves by teaching themselves. And I'm, one of the things I think we've tried to do with Magda recently is instead of becoming, you know, you see a lot of players in matches pumping themselves up, making this, come on, let's go, let's fight, this kind of mentality. That's great. But really what I need you to do is coach yourself in a match. I don't need you to motivate yourself. You should already be pumped up and all that stuff. Coach yourself. Be aware of how you're losing and be aware of how you're winning. Because I think a lot of times now players are just playing point by point and they're not really sure what exactly. It's the old, you know, from the inner game. Was it the inner game of tennis or who's doing what to whom? I think it's pretty accurate still. Are you against on-court coaching? So No, no, I'm in favor. I wish they would bring it back. I love on-court coaching. I wish the WTA would bring it back. Is it gone? I didn't um, even know it was gone. 
Yeah, so during COVID, when COVID came, uh, on-court coaching was gone. So that was where we would be mic'd up and we could yeah. go onto the court once a set or you could go on again if the opponent had a medical timeout or a toilet break. Uh, and then COVID came, so they said, no, we're scrapping that because we don't want to be seen as showing having people close together. Um, so they scrapped it and it never came back and they've implemented off-court coaching now. Okay. So you can coach from the seat that you're sitting in, the, but you can only coach from that assigned seat. If the player's near you, you can talk a little bit. But uh, it's not as, for me, it's not, it's not as useful. I prefer the old way. But I think I'm in the minority. Speaking to other coaches... I'm in the minority. Seems to be the male coaches tend to don't want it and the female coaches are split between some just want the players, they don't want it. You know, they want the player to just figure it out. I just think that's such a stupid argument. I just, I just, I just have no understanding of that. We're in a sport. It's an entertainment for one. So we want the players to be performing as well as they can to increase the entertainment value. Every other sport does. You know, people say well, it's an individual sport. We have a so's boxing and they have between rounds, they sit down and they can talk to their coach. You have golf that try, it has a caddy with them the whole whole round. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that by offering the option of having it, you can use it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. So if you're a player that says, no, I want to figure it out for myself, then, then no one's stopping you doing that. Yeah. Figure it out for yourself. But if you know you want to have it, I think you should be able to, especially since these players are independent contractors, they're paying for their coach, right? They're paying a lot of money for these coaches to be at the tournaments with them. And then we're saying, no, you can't use them. doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's a good argument. I, I think what I see, the biggest thing I see is more the lower ranked players who some don't have coaches, no, more to lower levels rather than the top levels where yeah, you have a coach, I don't. So it's a bit of an unfair advantage, but that's that's life at the end of the day, isn't it? Where I mean, everyone's got a f an advantage. I mean, the guy that played me that's taller than me, he has an advantage, but we still play. Yeah. That's the yeah. way it goes. And, and honestly... Uh, over the years, I, I have a big sympathy for the lower ranked players or the players that don't have the finances. But ultimately, the players that are selling the game are the players in the top 100, at the very minimum top 100. You know, you could even argue that players that are 90, 80, 70, 60 in the world, they're not really bringing value to the sport. You can argue that. It's a, it's a long argument and I can we can go through many different ways, but you know, there's a very, the money is top heavy, but the, the fans come and the media pays for those top players. They're not coming to watch players that are ranked 80, 90 or 100. And that's the reality of it. True. can just take a couple of names, can withdraw from a tournament and it can change everything completely. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree there. And also the other thing I find is if you're really good, like if you have potential to be top 100, top 50, you'll get through the futures quickly. You won't need it. I don't think you need a coach. I think you could even probably get through the challengers. With, well, you need probably need a bit more help. But if you're good enough, it's the players with, I feel bad saying this, but it's the players who aren't good enough who complain about not having a coach, not having money. It's an excuse. It's a cop out. And, 100%. Yeah. And, and the, the bottom line is that I think that a lot of, somewhere along the, t the lines, Players, if you go back to the ITF site, they called it a pathway. They called it a developmental path. They called it a transition tour. And players, for me, have lost that understanding. It's a transition, meaning you get in and you get out. You don't stay there. And that's what's happened. If you go down and you look at these ITF tournaments, it's the same players playing the 50s and the 75s or the 80s as they are now for 10 years. That's not a transition. That's now what you are. I know now, I don't know how much of it has been released, but 
there's a restructuring going on on the WTA tour that you're going to see take effect next year. And it will really drastically change the way tournaments are set up because they're trying to create more rivalries between the top players. They're trying to have it so that you're familiar with certain players' names so that we get that excitement. And and the reality is I definitely think you 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 know these players that are two three four hundred they're unbelievably great players but the reality is they're not bringing something to the tour so it's very hard to then justify them wanting to take something out from the tour it's a tough life 10 years playing those challenger tournaments and it's not all what it's made out to be not at all back on track here you did some work you spent a few months with martina i'm sure you learned loads there what was the next step so then I actually, I moved down to Florida and I worked at a tennis academy, which was called International Tennis Academy back then, working for a for a guy called Alan Ma. And he had a, a great academy down there where I worked with some, so he, I mean, we just had the best players training down there. And I ended up working with uh, an American girl, Lauren Albanese, and then a Hungarian player, Melinda Zink. And then uh, unfortunately, he sold his share of the academy. It moved and became Club Med, which is now in Port St. Lucie in Florida. Uh, he moved back to Asia. I kind of floated around with some some pro players, some juniors. And then in about 2015, um, I actually went to work for him again in China. So I was based in China for five years there in Guangzhou. Is that where you met Magda? Yes, yeah, so Magda. It's a strange one because Magda was living in China f- for about 2013 or 14. Why was that? She had also met Alan, who owned the facility there called Star River. And um, he had, he's a generous guy. He helped her out with training costs, provided her some opportunities, and she ended up staying there. And we had a lot of good players. Magda was there, Zarina Diaz from Kazakhstan, uh, Zheng Sai Sai, Pong Shui was there. Um, and we had a lot of other players coming in and out um, and, and, and top juniors. And they have a great setup at the uh, academy there. So it was a really good training base. So. So I was based there, and uh, and that's where I met Magda. Okay, and you did you did a bit of work in Kazakhstan. Was that after? Before, that was before. before. Yeah, I skipped over that part. It seems like uh, being alive for that's a long time. About uh, 2012, maybe um, came over to Kazakhstan, did a year working here for the federation, and worked with the trans sort of transition girls. Uh, had about four transition girls that were in that five six hundred range. Um, just kind of helping them and uh, a couple of them ended up going off to college and doing okay there. Um, a couple went up to about maybe 250, 300 and, and did okay. So yeah, it's it's not easy. And and that's where we're recording from today. You're back there at some Billie Jean Cup. Does it feel good to be back there and meet a few old friends? Yeah, in, in my old stomping ground here. It's changed a lot, but great tennis culture here. Obviously, you know, they have, um, they're also making a big push to try and grow some homegrown players. Um, obviously, they brought in some Russians over the years with Rybakina and Andrei Golubev and um, Yulia Putintseva, etc. But uh, they've got some local players that are, are, are doing well and they've got a great setup here with the, the Federation has kind of an unlimited budget with the, uh, the guy Boulat that owns the whole place. So um, they have some great training facilities here all over the country. So they're doing well. Yeah, the unlimited budget really helps to, you know, you can bring in players from safety and, uh, yeah, provide for a lot of them. So the Rubikina story has been interesting. She's been a powerhouse, really. Uh, she's, yeah, I'm kind of hoping she doesn't feel too good over the next few days while we play her because she's uh, she's been on a roll this last, I mean, since 
since the start of the year, really. I mean, finals of Australia, uh, one Indian Wells final of Miami. I mean, she's probably the best player in the world so far this year. Yeah, she was on a roll. She sort of started pre-COVID and then she was getting going then and then that just sort of halted everything. So it's like a delayed start for her. But moved on to Magda. So how did that come about? You were you were in the same place as her. You started chatting with her. She was looking for a coach. Well, she actually had a coach that was working with her, um, Izzo Zunic. She did a really good job with her. He was from Croatia. And, and then they developed a personal relationship at the time. So so felt that it was best to have somebody else to come in. And I was working with some juniors and, and just it just worked out that, you know, we said, OK, let's give this a try. And it kind of worked out. Timing was good. And um, yeah, so we just kind of carried on from there. And then we stopped in 2020, uh, end of 2020, we actually stopped for a year. And um, I went off and worked with Shelby Rogers for a year yeah. and she went off with a different coach. And then after after that year finished, I think we both sort of said, OK, let's try again. I had a great time with Shelby. She was a great player and um, I actually wanted to travel a bit less, but that hasn't worked out as I'd hoped. So who's uh, Ian you work also with? What way does that work? So, so, no, so Ian, uh, I knew Ian back when I was when I was playing at Sutton, which was a, a, a tennis academy in England, but when I was about 16, and I knew him there as an academy coach. Um, so I've known him for 20 years. Yeah, about last middle, middle of last summer, June, July sometime, he wasn't working with anyone. He'd stopped working with his player and was, you know, kind of just sitting around really. So I said to him, well, maybe you could help Magda and I a little bit. I, I ran it by Magda to see. Obviously, there's financial implications to that for her. But I thought that having someone with a different uh, set of eyes and a different way of looking at things would be beneficial. And it has been. So, Is it less traveling for you as well? Actually, no, it's, it's no less travel at all. It's the same. Um, it's made it more fun at times because you have somebody else to share the, the thought process with. And obviously, I've learned a lot from him. Because you're getting someone yeah. with more experience and different. Just he, I, the interesting thing with Ian was that he came from a non-tennis background. He grew up playing football. Uh, that was his passion. He never really played tennis. And then he kind of got into, I think, sort of, he wouldn't mind me saying club level was probably about as good as he was. So he he comes at it with a different, and not that I was a, a great player at all, but he comes at it from a different angle, more of a, of a you know, really... He he coaches as a coach, okay. not as a player. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's it's different, and he also has a much different way of delivering messages than I do. Usually, a lot nicer way, <laughs> a, lot, a lot calmer. That's good cop, um, bad cop. Yeah, I, I'm kind of used to being the bad cop now all the time. So, um, but I think that it's working for the most part. We have our moments where it doesn't, but you know, in in general, I think she needs a little bit of both. Um, so so Magda was top 100 for a long time. You say she's been t- top 100 in general eight or nine years now, you were saying? I think it's, eight, it's at least eight years in a row now. So, so she's consistent. But I think for a while she was more the, the lower end or not the higher end. Yep. I'm not sure what way to say it. Yeah. But uh, she was more near the 100 side for a long time. And more recently, like she moved into, she was top 40 and now she's top 20. A few weeks ago, we had... Uh, Talon for on the podcast and he explained the differences between you know the futures the challengers and the pros and he explained that quite well but maybe you can tell us the difference between a top 100 player and a top 20 player it's a good one it's um you know over the years Magda has you know back in about 2019 we got to 33 in the world she won two WTA titles within a really close within six months she was doing really well I think 
that now she's top 20. I think she's playing better. Yes. I think that she's developed a little bit more belief. I think the run that she had in Australia and at the end of last year gave her some belief. You know, a lot of people ask me that question, but I don't know if there's one answer. I think, you know, I see players that... I think, first of all, we scheduled better. We have to schedule better because I had her playing too much before. So we've had to we've had to reduce the amount she's playing. She's not young. She's 31 now. So she's, she's not old, but she's not young. Schedule a little better, more training blocks. But then obviously when you take more training blocks and play less tournaments, you better perform in those tournaments, right? Because you're, yeah. You, yeah. you're not playing as much. So you have less kicks at the can. Um, I think that she's just a little bit more consistent and a little bit more comfortable in what she's trying to do on the court. She's mastered a little bit more her own craft and she's a little bit more secure in what she wants to do every day on on practice, in the match and and her expectations. I think this, you know, in in Australia when she had a good run, it was was a, a coming together of a lot of years of work though. And you know, if we could bottle, bottle that up and keep it, we'd we'd be great. But it's it was a it was a moment where her level of competitiveness was so good, her focus was so narrow in what it needed to be, and then her tennis also was great. She was striking the ball well, so all those things came together at once. But I don't think that she was not capable. If you look at her results over the last 2018 or 19, she beats Osaka at Washington, and then that year Osaka wins a Grand Slam. She beats Barty three years ago at the French Open and Barty won the slam the following year, I believe. She beats Fitalina at Wimbledon. She's beaten the top players in the slams, in in big tournaments, I should say, for a while. But it's a matter of doing it consistently. And it's an interesting dynamic now because for the first time, she's more at the top of the mountain looking down rather than at the bottom looking up. And I think that's a new pressure for her that it's going to take some time to get used to. Yeah, it's definitely, isn't it, where you're expected to win and all of a sudden you're, it, it can be tougher. And was so you say better decision-making, more belief, better scheduling, more training blocks, uh, more consistent. And also, I think the last thing you mentioned was where she's better at understanding her game. Is that right? It, more so, let me, how would I say it? She, yes. she's, she probably knows her game, so it's easier to execute. It's the one thing you do rather than try and do everything. It, it, yeah, I think she's been clear. I think Ian's helped out as, as well. Well, as a coach, you don't want to say to players that you can't do something or you're not good enough to do this, you know, but but the reality is you have to know what you can and can't do on the court. When we're doing our training now, I think it was David Goggins. I loved his his book. He, he, he wrote some books and he says, you don't rise to the level of your expectation. You fall to the level of your training. And I think now when she's on the court, we're either training for the purpose of training. We need volume in the off season. We're training to imp- or we're training to improve working on something specific, or we're training to win. And I think, you know, now when we go to practice, we're saying, okay, today in practice, when you're practicing with this girl, the goal is to win. I don't care how you do it. You win. That's the goal. Every point, it's just like that mental focus. Right. Just go out and win. And I don't care how you do it. And then maybe the next day it's, no, we're going to train today to improve. We're going to work on something specific. And then maybe, you know, during your off seasons or training box, you need to put in the, the volume. I think we're training a little bit smarter than we had before. So I wish, wish I'd done it before. You're learning. Look, you, she's learning, you're learning, you're learning as a team. The, the train to anything is really interesting because normally a question I might ask somebody is like, how do you be more competitive? How do you train that? And I never thought about reversing what I'm saying and go, how do you train to win? Well, 
you sort of win to train or makes a lot of sense. I hadn't, I, th- I think if people can take one thing away from this episode, it's like go out there and practice tomorrow, but you're going to win every win, win, just focus on winning. And that's really, I think it's, yeah. And I think it's a big difference for me between men and women. I think that guys, and this is not everyone, of course, this is a generalization, but when I played and, and, and the friends I had growing up, whatever we did, whether it was football, whether it was playing up and down in a, in a club, tennis club, you wanted to beat the guy. You were an unconditional competitor once the point started. The women a little bit more can be more conditional. You know, it, it depends on other things can influence how well they might compete that day. You know, a lot of times in practice as well, you see so many times, no, I don't want to play points today. Or should we just play a tie break? No, we're going to play a freaking set and you're going to try to win it. And that's the purpose. And if you lose, then you will deal with it. I think there's so many players don't want to put themselves in that position. And you do get some pros, they they lose sets, but then the match situations are different as well. That's kind of interesting where it's what you're saying there, but they lose sets to X, Y, Z, but if they get them on a match court, they're not going to lose. Exactly. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's times where we'll play practice sets and the goal is not to win. The goal is, hey, I need you to work today. We need to improve body serves. We're not using the body serve enough. So I want 75, 80% of your serves today just going at the body. I'll give you one a game where you can serve out wide or down the tee, but, and that's it. And you might lose today because you're gonna work on that, but, but you also need to practice winning. Winning's a habit. That's a really fascinating point from Mark. When I had Gianluigi Quincy on a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned that throughout his junior career, the thing that made him different from the other juniors was his unconditional commitment to winning. Yes, for any player at any level, there are days where you have to train to improve certain things. But if you want to climb those rankings, you want to be one of the best, you have to make winning a habit every single day. Quickly jumping in to give you three great bits of Sabre news. Firstly, the Sabre Mid is back in stock and shipping out to customers. Secondly, we have teamed up with Selenko to offer a string that is specifically made for the Sabre. It comes in the perfect length for the Sabre. It's synthetic gut string and it's a match made in heaven for the Sabre. I've been using it for over six months now. Absolutely love it. And lastly, a lighter version of our mid 300 gram unstrung Sabre was heavily requested by parents of younger players, especially in the 9 to 13 age group, as well as players who like using a lighter racket. And I'm glad to say we have finally received our first batch of the Sabre Light. It's the exact same great frame and design as the mid, but it weighs in at 265 grams unstrung. You can check it out at Functional Tennis dot com and you can order it from today this is just a quick reminder you're listening to functional tennis the podcast that helps you get one percent better every day with me fabio molly coming up on the podcast i asked mark does he remember a time when he thought that magda's training had clicked and there was big things coming Mark also explained why the key to building a strong coaching team is assembling people with different specialisms. And I also asked Mark, speaking of juniors, we mentioned them a lot, what is the number one most important trait junior players must have to go pro? But first, I want to ask Mark how he incorporates consequences into training. Is there ever consequences? Do you throw them in? I think that depends on who you're working with. The guys love the consequences. They love the butts up or for money. I think girls, um, in my experience, if you've lost, that's already enough for them to to feel 
HTML. Not happy about it. I don't want to add anything more to that. That's all they need. And when you've trained a partners in sessions, do you use males or females, mixer, predominantly one? Um, if we are working on things, I don't mind if it's a girl or a guy. I think um, it's fine with either. If we're playing points, I want a girl. I want a girl. I don't care the level, junior, senior, younger, old, doesn't matter. It's a different, it's it, when she plays it, you know, I used to hit a little bit more than I do now, but we once in a while we'd play a tie break. Okay, let's play. The way she's going to compete against me is different to how she's going to compete against another girl. It's a different pressure. She needs to play against other women in my, in my opinion. I think that's important. Did you take her down? Oh, of course, uh, <laughs> we've got no chance. <laughs> but uh, even even the ball you get is completely different. I know it's obvious, but I remember playing used to play in the National Academy here, and sometimes they throw in the girls, and all of a sudden it's a big flat ball coming at you, and it takes yeah. you a while to step in, adjust, and be the same for them where they're getting a big heavier ball that takes throws them off as well. It, it does, and and I know a lot of people say well, it's better to train with guys because it's a it's a bigger, better ball. I don't know if I want a bigger, better ball. I want the ball that they're going to yeah. see 90% of the time because, you know, we, we've, we've got guys in, in Florida that have come out and hit with her and they're 15 years old. If they hit properly, their forehand, we, we don't have much chance of staying in the rally. I mean, we can't put three balls back because it's a different ball, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's just completely different so I, I don't always like that idea and a flat ball well, flat ball coming at you from both sides is pretty hard to, you know the, pay, the women's pace is quite pacey uh, and being flat it's just shooting through so it's tough to deal with especially if you're an amateur like me very much actually I, I know quite friendly with a, a player Darian King who works with Sloane Stevens. And we always joke him because he was a hell of a player. I mean, he hits a great ball. And he says, Mark, if you put me in this backhand corner with Sloan or forehand side, I struggle. I mean, these girls just rip the hell out of yeah. the ball, you know, and it's fast and hard. But, you know, they, they do this well. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, for me, I'd rather have the Magda hitting with a ball that she's likely to see in a match. And looking back through the past few years, was there, I know this was Magda's 29th attempt at a Grand Slam when she reached the semis this year, which is, you know, it just shows that hard work and the commitment to get better. But was there a day that you remember in training that was like, okay, everything's clicking now? I wouldn't say it was a day, but I noticed towards the end of last year, she was starting to understand a few things that things that I hadn't you know and Ian had come in and helped some things that just click a little bit better and often as coaches I think we'll all agree on what we're trying to do we say yeah that's what we want to achieve but maybe is it the singer or the song and I think we were probably singing the same song but when he sung it she heard it slightly differently so some things clicked and then I could see some progressions and I, I I'm I would say I'm wrong 95% of the time on what I on my predictions, I said to Ian in the off season, "This is going to be the best year she ever has." I can see it. I know one thing I do is I know Magda very well, and I've not seen her play this well or have this look about her before. And then we did. We went to Australia and had a good start. So now the key is just trying to find a way to keep it going. That's the yeah the hard part. That's yeah, but uh, it was it was an experience, and she, I think that what's nice is it's given her a bit of belief now that she goes actually. I can do this. I can I can beat these girls. I can compete with these girls. And um, yeah, she's she's feeling good. I'd say looking at from the outside, a large part is belief, like saying, I can, I've done it before. I can do it again. And, you know, then it doesn't matter who you're playing. You know, you've if you stick around, you'll 
get your chances. Yeah, I, I mean, it, all the all the stars aligned for that kind of month down in Australia, and she she took took her opportunity. I mean, she beat a lot of good players down there, um, and and some of them. I, I remember telling her it was this cliche, but I said, look, if you played this girl ten times, she probably beats us nine. But it doesn't matter. We just need to win that one today. And and it was it was you know right away tough first round but she got through that didn't play her best and then after that every round was a top 20 player but when you're the underdog not the dog you uh you have a different pressure so now she's she's kind of in the the role reversal now now she's the dog nice and how do you like you talk about having Ian and the teams giving you a different perspective you can bounce ideas off him but do you have a mentor how do you improve as a coach I think one thing I encourage a lot of coaches to do that are coming up that are young is is to get in there and work at academies and practice and hone your skills. Find out things that work. Find out what doesn't. Know what you're good at. Know what you're not good at. That's the first part. And then I've always with Magda had a, a list of people that you know Magda's just not serving well right now. I need to call. Uh, I need to call this guy. And he's going to come and help me with this and find out if I'm missing something or give her some direction on that. I think everyone needs to have someone. Actually, and uh, the WTA Tour has recently started a program that we had last week in Charleston where they're bringing in young coaches to sort of shadow WTA coaches for the week, which I think is great. So I think, you know, even on the tour, there's there's actually a nice group now of, of English coaches on the tour, yeah. which is, which is you know, you've got Andrew Bettles working with uh, Jill Teichman. Obviously, I'm out there. Uh, Tom Hill is out there with uh, with Sicari. Maria, you know, and there's a couple others out there as well. So um, I think that there's a there's a group there, and I like to talk to Tom as much as possible and help him and uh, give him some ideas because I think that we, you know, I can learn stuff from him. He can help, you know, maybe learn some things from me. So it's I think that as coaches we have to network, you have to talk, you have to be open to ideas and and challenging stuff. I think I think it's like a business as well where you speak to people in similar businesses where you learn different things and I do look at sometimes you look at coaches from the outside and you may feel they think you know they're the best coach and but I don't fully believe that one coach can be the best forehand coach, the best backhand coach, the best serve coach. There are coaches out there and I'm only speaking to somebody about this yesterday where he was looking to work on a serve and I will you got to call X, he's the serve guy. And forehand, well, he's the forehand guy and he's the mental guy. So I I think it's really wise what you do there. You reach out. As coaches, we're never building a house. We're renovating or refurbishing a house because pretty much you never start with someone or I don't anyway start with someone that's never played before. So they've always got some experience. And when you when you renovate a house, you need the electrician and the plumber. And, and, and the guy, the carpenter, you, you need all these different kinds of, of qualifications from different people. So I, I like to get different advice and, and different input from, from, from other people. I think that you can have, you can do all the qualifications and certifications. I think they're great. And I think that gives you knowledge. I struggle a little bit with some of that stuff because some of this, you know, I've been to presentations and conferences and I think it's great for knowledge. I think though a lot of the people that are providing you that knowledge are not out there what I would say in the trenches day to day. I don't see a lot of those guys giving those presentations on tour 40 weeks a year. So I, the theory is one side, but you know, the implementation of it is is a whole different thing. You know, there's days with Magda where I look at her and I, I know seeing her at breakfast, 
this is not a day that I can give her more information right away. This is not going to be a day to improve. This is going to be a day where we're going to get it through it. We're going to try and maintain our level. And maybe if we are going to improve, the improvements will come off the court talking. Maybe we watch some video, but that's something that you learn through feel and awareness. And that's a very, for me, a very hard skill to teach because it relies on that human awareness that's not a tangible skill that you can learn and get qualified in. And you know what I mean? That's something that takes experience. Um, and, and yeah, there's days where I know I can push her. There's days where I can, uh, last week we we're playing in Charleston. She's playing against Madison Keys and she's just asleep the first set. I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, it kind of threw me off guard. But the day before, she'd had a really long match against Kracheva. My body language during that Madison Keys first set, maybe to the un outside person, they wouldn't notice, but she knew that I was not happy with her performance after that first set, her energy, her attitude. And I made sure she knew that. I knew how to push a button for her that day to make her respond. And it worked for a set. It didn't work for yeah. two sets, unfortunately, but it, it got her back on track and she was able to win. Now, is that, am I saying that I won that second set for it? No, 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 not at all. But as a coach that's on the tour, you have to know your player. You have to know how to push certain buttons. And I can tell you that maybe I helped her get into the right mindset that day or maybe win that second set. I've also done the complete opposite before where I've said something or done something that has caused a complete meltdown. Explosion. And I've done that probably more than I've done good. So it's it's a balancing act. But I think that a tour coach, you know, we don't get to go home at night. We're not nine to five club coaches. We're there 24-7. It's a tough job, but all, all tennis coaching is tough. It's not ours. It's just a different kind of toughness. When you see junior players, Mark, and what what do you ultimately what do you look in a player that you say, okay, they may have potential on the ATP or WTA tour? I really would prefer to speak on the women's side, just because that's where I'm more familiar. Yeah, I I I don't think that I don't know the men's, but I think that you've had Jills on here before, who works with Daniil Medvedev, obviously. No, I haven't actually. No. Oh, you he haven't had Jules? No, okay, no. sorry. I thought you had. No. Uh, he's, uh, I know him pretty well. Um, he's a really great guy. I'll talk to him. You need to get him on here. He's, yeah. he's a really good coach. He's done a great job. He, he has a saber. I know that. And as far he as, does. And as far as I know, Daniel uses it, I, but I haven't got no video, no anything. But I'm uh, going to, I'm going to talk to him next time I see him and, uh, you know, I'll see if I can, I can yeah. convince him to come I, on, but he's, he's so knowledgeable on the men's side and he would probably give you a better insight in that. I think for me, for a, for the woman's side, the number one skill would be competitiveness. How, how good a competitor are they? You know, you've got, I often have this conversation with, with other coaches. Okay, if you could choose three things that you had in a player, one would be, say, competitiveness, money. They've got to have money, right? You've got to have money to, to fund this thing, unfortunately. Uh, talent. How hard do they work? Do they have parents that are involved and that are really causing a lot of issues? You know, what what are the three things you want? For me, it's going to be how hard they work. It's going to be competitiveness. And then they're going to have to have, they are going to have to have money. They're going to have to have enough money to give themselves the opportunity. Otherwise, they're going to end up maybe in college or going down that path. But I think um, for me, if you can find a girl that really competes hard, you look down that top 100 list of players in the world on the women's side, and you're going to see girls with all kinds of physical abilities, um, you're going to see all kinds of technique, you know, good and bad. But if they can compete well on the women's side, they can do very well.
Yeah, interesting. And do you think if you're good enough, the money will find you? I think that there's an element of luck, but you need to have the right people around you to advise you on how to get there. There's so many players that could have made it had they had the right advice, and in my opinion. Is there one that sticks out that you can, is there one player that you can say would have, could have made it had they had the right advice that rings a bell? I think that's a t- that's a tough question. I would need to think about who specifically. I've seen it so many times where players for me haven't fulfilled their potential. It's it's usually down to not having a team around them. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, that the level of coaching on the tour isn't good enough. It just isn't. You know, on the for example, in the Premier League, you know, I talk to Ian about this a lot because he's a big football fan. That to, to be a manager in a Premier League, you have no matter whether you are Zidane or Guardiola, however good you are, you have to get your license. You have to go through the stages to get to be the the manager of Chelsea or Liverpool. You know, you can't be a great player and jump straight in to be the manager of Manchester United. You have to go through all those phases, yeah. teaching the academy, the licenses, and in tennis we don't have that. And so then you get a lot of people propagating nonsense and and not being fully educated or qualified to lead the player. And that player is great, but one or two bad decisions early on can can destroy everything. So I think that as coaches, we have to be we have to be better. Most of the time, the cream does rise to the to the top, but. We had Gianluigi Quincy on a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if you know him, was a former Wimbledon champion, junior Wimbledon champion, and then said the pressure just changed after it. But what he talked about was when he was 14, 15, 16, his coaches, looking back, was the issue. And, his own, you know, he was in this mindset as well, where it's all about the next win, the next win, the next win. It was never about, look at your career in 10 years' time. Where do you want to be? Let's work towards that. And he said it was, by the time he was 19, he couldn't change that that's who he was and it was hard mentally to change that so you're right the importance of having good people who know what they're doing around you is essential at any age and and, and i hear a lot from junior players that they, they play they were great juniors and they get into the pros and they struggle but there's also when you're in the juniors you're playing for nothing other than to win when you get to the pros you're playing for money and that changes everything People don't want to admit it, but it changes everything. You win Wimbledon Junior, you're a hell of a player, great competitor. You get that following year, you're out there playing futures. Maybe you don't have sponsors, maybe you don't have a lot of money, but you are competing for money. And that's, you know, the bottom line is, is it cha- money changes everything. You know, if I wasn't getting paid, would I be out here on the tour? No, I wouldn't be here, you know, and, and, and does it change things knowing you know, when Magda's in that match in Australia, for example, playing for half a million dollars, the pressure's on more. You yeah. know, the first round's worth 50,000 and the fourth round's worth 300. There's, there are different pressures and you do think about it. You, you know, the top players maybe don't, they're there week in and week out. But I see that a lot from the juniors in that first two years afterwards. You just see guys just struggle with that pressure of, of, of financial pressure. You want to have a coach now. The federation's not supporting you as much, you know, and you're out of the junior, so it gets tough. Well, what's not talked about also is the taxes. Like you may say, half a million, half half of that's gone straight away. Like between the low the tournament local tax and then your home tax, and it's I crazy. Mean, you, you wouldn't believe in Australia. She 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 gets her paycheck, you know, and and you sit down while you're in Australia before you leave. You have to go to the tax office, which is on site for the players. So I actually helped her this year because there was so much stuff going on. And, you know, when you look at what she made and then you look at her expenses for flights and all that stuff, which she gets to deduct, but it's still a lot of expenses getting down to Australia for for myself, Mm. for her, for Ian. 
and then you look at what she's taxed there. And then she takes that money at tax that I don't know what it is in Australia, 35%, 40, yeah. something like that. Then she brings it to Poland and she gets taxed again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, so that money goes down very quickly. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not as glamorous. It's not as much as people think. And uh, yeah, not an easy way to make a living. Definitely not. And so I have two questions for you. One is, put maybe both of them I ask everybody, but one is, what's your advice to be 1% better every day? You've got to be out of your comfort zone. I think it's so cliche, so I hate to say this, but you've got to do something on the court, off the court, anywhere that is uncomfortable. I think comfort is the enemy of of greatness. I think that the, 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 the cycling team in England years ago, the guy that they brought in to change the whole cycling culture in England to where they went on and won all the Olympics and he called it the law of marginal gains. If we can be 1% better every day over a period of time, that builds up to a lot. So I think, um, yeah, trying to make yourself uncomfortable every day. Yeah, it works well with the get comfortable being uncomfortable. I like that quote. And finally, if I look back in this podcast in, let's say, late December, this episode, and I listen back and I ask Mark, what's your goal for the end of the year? What is, what is your goal? I will look back also. So. <laughs> My goal? Um, to lose a little bit of weight, to have the same amount of hair. That's, that would be uh, a good goal. Um, what do I think? Look, look, we right now are 19. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think that if we could end the year in a top 25 spot, I think for me, being next year seeded in the slams would be a really nice achievement because that changes everything, that you're not going to play the top 32 player in the world to start the big tournaments. Being seeded is really nice. And, and again, you know, anything can happen when she, when, you know, what's happened the last few months was was surprising and not surprising for me. I was surprised, you know, because it happened and it's an amazing feeling for her. But but also I knew she could do it. It's just, can she do it? There's, you know, so it was, it was, yeah, I would like to say if we could stay in the top 32 and be seeded for the slams, but, you know, at the end of the season, that would be a real achievement. I'll check in and see. But uh, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, great chatting to you. And yeah, thanks for all the insight into your coaching career in Magda. Thank you so much. And I'll definitely talk to Gilles. That's the end of the show for today. It was a fascinating conversation and I'm really looking forward to chat with you again and reviewing your progress on those goals. Thank you all for listening. Next week, I won't have a show for you. I'll be taking a short break while I'm at the IMG Future Stars Tennis Tournament in Greece filming some of the world's best under-12s in the world. But I'll be back in May with more. Just a few quick notes before we go. Make sure to follow the show so you get automatically notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to learn more about me or the work we do at Functional Tennis, visit our website at functionaltennis.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at the Functional Tennis Podcast and with me on Twitter, Fab Mall. This podcast is produced by One Fine Play. James Bishop is the executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer. I've been your host, Fabio Molly. Thanks for listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Thank you.